right, today we are in Mark chapter 14. If you want to grab your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 14, we're going to be in verse 32 to 42. It'll be on the screen behind me. If you could, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Mark chapter 14, verse 32 to 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> Today we're going to be looking at the, the theme that a disciple surrenders in prayer. I'm going to start uh, this sermon by uh, reading Psalm 42, verse 9 through 11. Psalm 42, 9 through 11, and as I read this, think about the situation that Jesus was in. Psalm 42 says this, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So we've been working through the book of Mark, and today we find ourselves with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the disciples had just enjoyed a feast with Jesus, the Passover feast. It was a memorable one, to be sure. Jesus had presided over the feast, and he made some interesting and shocking statements. This is my body. This is my blood of the covenant. The Son of Man would be betrayed by one of them, one of the twelve. Who would dare betray Jesus? Certainly he didn't mean that he'd be betrayed in the sense of turning him over to the authorities who want to kill him. That would be horrible. And I can picture Peter feeling even more troubled in his spirit than the rest of them. Walking along next to Jesus as they headed to the Garden of Gethsemane, he had been with Jesus for three years through thick and thin. And sure, he had his moments of stupidity and his moments where he acted rashly without thinking, but he was the one who had declared that Jesus was the Messiah. He believed it with all his heart. And he was the one who had walked on water with Jesus. <clears throat> he had faith that Jesus could do the impossible. He was the one who saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. He had assurance that Jesus was not just a mere man. He was the one who saw Jesus raise up Jairus' daughter. He was convinced that Jesus had power to give life. He was the one there yesterday when Jesus had predicted the fall of the temple. He was beginning to believe that there was more going on here than met the eye. 
But Jesus had said that he would deny him. That just seems so crazy. Why would he deny him? And I can picture Peter thinking, what could possibly happen? What scenario could possibly arise where I would say that I didn't know this man? He has changed my life and I love him. He has fed thousands. He's released demons. He's uh, people from demon possession. He's cleansed lepers. He's healed the blind. He's walked on the water. He's raised the dead. There's no way on earth that I'm going to deny this guy. But it, it hurts that he thinks that I will. <clears throat> I'm disappointed and frustrated and confused and troubled in my spirit. I'm not sure what to do about it. I'm angry, so I need to settle down. I'll talk to Jesus in a bit, but not right now. Not with everyone around anyway. I think I'll sit and rest when we get to the garden. It's a nice evening. It's clear. It's dry. It's warm. It's breezy. And so the whole clan of the disciples, along with Jesus, arrive at Gethsemane. And Gethsemane is a valley between two hills, the one that Jerusalem sits on and the one of the Mount of Olives sits on. <clears throat> and they're literally walking through the valley of the shadow of death of Jesus, right, uh, of Jesus' death looming over them. And it was dark, and in the moonlight cast its shadows across the land, making it easy for them to find their way. And as they enter the garden, Jesus all of a sudden said, sit here while I go further and pray. And so the nine sat down, uh, sat down, but Jesus pointed to Peter, James, and John, and he said, hey, come on, let's go. And they silently follow him further into the garden. But there wasn't nine that sat down, there was only eight. Where was Judas? Well, maybe he was paying the owner of the room that they had just used and where they had just had their dinner. And he'd probably come along shortly, they, I'm sure they assumed. And so the four of them, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, they go further into, into the garden. And with every step, Jesus seemed to be getting more and more sullen, distressed even. He looked very troubled. Why would he be troubled? Peter maybe continued his thoughts. I suppose, I, I'm supposed to be the one who's going to be denying him. I'm supposed to be the one that's troubled. Why is Jesus the troubled one? What is going on with Jesus? He seems quite not himself this evening. And they walked a few minutes further into the garden now, and, and Jesus stopped. He looked around, he looked up, and then with a pained look on his face, he said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And then he just walked away into the darkness. And Peter, James, and John could hear him go a bit further, and then they saw him collapse on the ground, and they heard gaffs and sobs. And it sounded like he was grieving the death of someone. And Peter, James, and John, unsure of what to do or what to make of it all, they sat down, and they were awake for a bit, but soon the wine, the cool breeze, the quiet, and the dark all overcame them, and they fell asleep. So now we're in the garden. And Mark records that Jesus was deeply distressed and heavy in spirit. Why was Jesus so distressed and troubled? Was it the prospect of death? Probably not. He had been resolute the whole journey to Jerusalem. He did not fear death. Was it the betrayal and the suffering and, and the mocking and the pain? Again, I don't, I don't think so. As painful as that is, it was, it was temporary. Only a few hours and then he'd be dead. So. But Jesus said that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. I believe that Jesus suffered this great level of distress and trouble and sorrow, even unto death, he said, because he was going to experience separation from God. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And as if that wasn't bad enough, he was going to take upon himself the full wrath of God Almighty. That's an unbearable thought. Jesus was going to take the full punishment for all the sin of the whole world, all the hate and all the abuse and all the murder and the lying and the gossiping and the betrayal and the adultery and the fornication and the injustice and the cowardice and the genocide and the stealing and the list goes on and on and on. All of it he'd take on his shoulders. In Romans, the Apostle Paul says, for, this, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus never committed a sinful act. And now he would take all the evil of all time upon himself the whole weight of evil of all of humanity, the weight and the offense and the putridness of that sin was overwhelming to his soul. And then knowing that he would be the sole object of God's wrath for all the evil and the sin that had ever been committed, I believe that Jesus was overwhelmed with the enormity of that situation. And the point is this. Jesus had to willingly do it. He had to willingly step into the wrath of God for the sake of the unjust, betraying, murderous, evil sin natures in all of us. And there's no analogy that can capture the repulsiveness of this. And Jesus took all of it. The worst that you can think of, the most grotesque and awful sins, the ones that ruin and maim the lives of, and souls of others, all of them were put on the back of Jesus and he carried them to the cross, alone. He was sorrowful even to death. And there's something profound in the scene of Jesus, <clears throat> lying on the ground, writhing in agony of soul and pain of spirit, sweating drops of blood, begging God to give him another way. And here it is. Jesus had to struggle through the temptation to disobey and forsake God's will. Jesus had to struggle through the temptation to disobey and forsake God's will. Jesus was distressed. That word can also be translated alarmed at the frightful proposal of willfully enduring the entirety of God's wrath for us. All God's wrath would fall upon Jesus in a few short hours. That's enough to frighten any one of us. And in his humanity, it frightened Jesus to his bones, even to death. But what did Jesus do in his moment of fear and distress and trouble and deep sorrow? He went to the Father in prayer. He did not cower from God. He did not run from God. He did not blame God. He did not curse God. He did not reject God. He obediently submitted his will to the will of the Father. It's the ultimate example of discipleship. Once surrender of the will is accomplished, the agony of death is seemingly insignificant. Breaking the will is more difficult than breaking the body. And this is what we're called to do. This is the life of a disciple. Complete surrender of our own will to the will of the Father. The most difficult part is the surrendering. Not just saying, but actually believing and living the truth that Jesus is Lord and I am not. And yet Jesus understands our deep pain and our anxiety and distress as we surrender our will and our lives to him. He understands what it is like to not be in control of our own destiny. He surrendered his fate into the hands 
of his father. So we're going to look today at this with this in mind. So point one is watch and pray, verse 34 and 35. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. So he says, remain here and watch. Now this is a parable of re- in, for real life. This is, there's a spiritual danger ahead of the disciples, being caught off guard, being deceived, being caught sleeping in the hour of Jesus' need. And this was it. This was the time. This was what it came down to. This was the time to be on guard. The soldiers were coming. The betrayer was at hand. Satan was executing his plan. All of history was culminating at this point. It was the climax of all history. And Jesus repeats his warning from the day before. Remember in Mark chapter 13, 33 and 37. He said, be on your guard. Stay awake. Watch. What I have to you, I say to all, stay awake and watch. The single most critical moment in Jesus' life, the moment he must surrender his will to the Father as he visualized going through the agonizing and grotesque act of becoming all the vile sin of all humanity so all the wrath of God could come crashing down on him in fury and in completion. Just stay here and watch. Don't leave me. I want you by my side. Join me in this moment of fear and anxiety and agony. All he wanted was for the disciples to be in the moment with him, to share in the experience. And he went a stone's throw away and literally collapsed on the ground in agony of soul. If you don't think Jesus knows what it's like to lie in the mud, gasping for breath between convulsive sobs as his heart pounds inside his chest and the cold sweat of fear and agony drips off his forehead, then you're gravely mistaken. This is the picture. He knows the feeling. He's been in your shoes. And he was tempted like you were to quit. He was tempted to say, God, this is too much. I can't possibly go through with it. You are horrible to even ask me to do this. How could you make me go through this agony? But he didn't say that. Instead, he prayed. And his prayer in verse 36 was this. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. His prayer is similar to the one that he taught the disciples when they were out and about a few months earlier. When he said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus began, Abba, Father. It's more reverential than what I've heard many pastors say that this is, like he just said, Daddy. And and I I believe that personally, it was an intimate adult father-son relationship where he said, Father. The Father called him his beloved son, the object of his affection, the recipient of his everlasting love. And Jesus came to his Father in his greatest hour of need, prostrate on the ground and said, Father, you are in heaven, hallowed be your name. The object of Jesus' affection, the recipient of Jesus' everlasting love was God the Father. Father, I need you. I cannot do this without you. He says, all things are possible for you. And Jesus has said the same thing earlier in chapter 10, verse 27, with the rich young ruler. 
For all things are possible with God, remember? And then 9.23, the child tormented by evil spirits was lying on the ground dead in front of Jesus. And, and Jesus said, all things are possible for those who believe. So Jesus says, Father, you can do anything. You can change these circumstances. You can alter the plan. You created the world. You are the source of life and knowledge and power and strength. And as such, could you possibly remove this cup from me? And I believe there was two cups. There was the cup of suffering. Father, please remove this pain and this agony. Could you relieve the heaviness of feel on my shoulders, the pounding in my chest, the dizzying effect of the truth, the waves of nausea from fear, the aching in my bones as I dread the weight and the stench of humanity's sin and the torture of your wrath. Please, can you make another way? I don't know if I can bear it. Give me this day my daily bread. And then there's the cup of death. Father, please change the outcome of all of this, which is my death. Couldn't you do what you did for Abraham? Create another being, another scapegoat that could take my place and upon which you could pour all your wrath. Forgive my debts as I forgive my debtors. You know what's so painful about the cups of suffering and death? It was the rejection and the separation. The betrayal of a close friend in Judas. The denial of his closest human companion, Peter. And then he was forsaken by all of his disciples in chapter 14, verse 50. And he was, he was his, God's, the Father's back was turned on him in chapter 15, verse 34. So Jesus was left alone. Yet not I will, but what you will. Jesus had to willfully go forward with the plan. The sovereignty of God does not negate the will of man. Jesus had to make a choice, just like we all do. And when it came to surrendering his will to the will of the Father, what did Jesus do? When it came to surrendering, when it comes to surrendering our will to the Father, what will we do? Jesus poured out his heart to the Father. I would suggest pour out our hearts in prayer. Jesus placed his request at the feet of the Father. He honestly shared his grief and his agony, his struggle, his desires with the Father. And this is what we should do. This is the essence of prayer. Humble, honest communication with God our Father. Admitting our grief and our distress and our anxiety and our sorrow and our frustration and our anger and our fear and honestly throwing ourselves at the feet of the Father making our requests known to him. And then we submit our will to the Father. Jesus submitted his will to the Father's will. He allowed God's will to be more important than his own. The Father's will took precedence over Jesus' will. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not what I will, but what you will. Father, do your will in me and through me. Whether that be in pain or in pleasure, in agony or in peace, in sorrow or in joy, in distress or in calm, in death or in life, I want what you want, Father. I submit myself unreservedly to you. A disciple surrenders in prayer. And then there's the contrast. Our second point, sleep and temptation, verse 37 to 41. And he came and found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. Jesus comes and he finds them sleeping. If you compare that to chapter 13, verse 36, Jesus is given that that, uh, that um, parable of, of the man that would come and find his, 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 his tenants. And he said, lest he come suddenly and find you sleeping. Interesting how it's paralleled. And Jesus asked Simon, are you asleep? Why did he have to single out Peter again? He already said that Peter would deny him. Now what's going on? And remember, this account is coming from Peter himself. Mark is writing at the voice of Peter here. And Peter's like, he's, he failed again. He probably thought the watching and being alert and, and not being deceived was for another day. He didn't realize that Jesus meant for him to watch immediately this evening. I would venture a bet that Peter looked back at these moments with a mixture of feelings. Regret for not cluing in but then gratitude for the grace of Jesus that changed his failures into parables for millions of people down through the, year, through the years. And we get to look into this story tonight or today. And Jesus says, could you not watch one hour? Chapter 13, verse 33 says, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And I believe that one of the greatest threats to the church in the West today is lethargy. Spiritual slothfulness, a spiritual laziness. Folks who believe but are too tired to follow, too sleepy from the wine and the activities of the day to watch and pray. We live like the time will never come. Like Peter and James and John, we don't believe that Jesus would come back now. Surely he means later on. Jesus said, you do not know when the time will come. The exhortation is to watch and pray. But their eyes were heavy. I remember many years staying up late with the rest of the hunting party. I don't know about you. Then we'd wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Crazy, godforsaken hour, 3 o'clock in the morning. And we'd head out to the woods that early in the morning. And long before sunup, we'd be in the woods waiting for that deer to come, right? My eyes got heavy, and the next thing I knew, the sun was up. I don't know if the deer went by or not. I would never know, because I was sleeping. Or, I remember back when I was in Bible school, we have Bible school students here, I'd stay up late the night before, I'd be playing soccer till 2 in the morning, eating late night custard, looking dreamily into my fiancé's eyes, and then I'd go to class the next day and be sitting there just like trying to keep my eyes open, right? You've been there. My eyelids were so heavy, if I could put my pencil lead in there, I would try, but it didn't work. I'd move my head around, I'd pinch myself, I'd slap myself. Nothing seemed to help. I was just sleepy. And this is how we can become spiritually. We get comfortable in our weekly routines. We, we don't read our Bibles every day, but we rationalize. Well, I don't cuss and, and swear anymore, so I'm, I'm okay. We get cozy in our church pews. Jesus better not ask me to go out my door anywhere dangerous or unsafe. We get complacent in our prayer life. We may pray at dinner, but not in public. And I need my sleep in the morning. I can't even think in the morning, much less put two sentences together enough to talk to God. We get confused. I thought that once I believed in Jesus, that things would go well for me. 
Why am I having all these bad things happen to me? God must not love me anymore. We get unconcerned. I don't really know what God's will is, and quite frankly, I don't really care. As long as I can keep enjoying the good life and don't mess up too badly, I'll be okay. And as far as the unsaved, well, God, God can take care of them on his own. He's sovereign after all. We're uncommitted. I'll follow Jesus only so long as he doesn't demand anything from me, like my free time, my money, my comfort, my coping mechanisms, stuff like that. And we sit back in the dark against the tree with the cool wind of complacency blowing on our face, and we fall asleep. We neglect to pray that we enter not into temptation. Temptation is a trial, a test, an enticement to sin. We're not watching and we're not praying and sin is sitting there ready to pounce. And Jesus says the spirit is willing. And this is not referring to the Holy Spirit. This is referring to our inner self, our soul and our spirit. We may be willing. We want to do what's right. But we say, well, I'll get to it someday. I'll believe in Jesus once I've fill in the blank, or I'll start reading my Bible once I've, I'll gather with other believers once this is done. I'll tell others about Jesus once I got it all figured out. I'll give and be generous once I get everything in order. I'll, I'll serve once I have time. I'll get serious about God once I feel like getting serious, once I'm done having fun. But the flesh is weak. We sleep in, we watch TV too long, we work overtime, we get people fatigued, we get sick, we forget, when we, and we choose not to. And Jesus' brother James said this in his letter to believers, He who knows to do good, but does not do it, to him it is sin. So whoever knows what is the right thing to do, but fails to do it, for him it is sin. And sin isn't just what, doing what's bad, like murder and steal and lust and lying. Sin is doing anything that it's outside of God's will or against his character. If Jesus hadn't gone to the cross at this moment, it would have been sin for him to not do that. And this is why we need to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, give us a desire to follow you. Give us strength to stay awake. Give us energy to pray. Give us eyes to see you in the midst of all that's going on. Give us ears to hear your truth. Give us desire and strength to obey your will. Give us words to say to the lost who need to hear about you. And this is the warning, the exhortation, and the challenge of this passage. And this plea is still ringing in the ears of those three closest disciples. And he went away and prayed, and he said the same words to God again. And I just want to take a moment and pause here. And as I was saying, sometimes we're comfortable and lethargic in our spiritual prayer lives. And I think sometimes we are this way because we get caught up in something called image management. Trying to be something more than what we really are. And let me explain. We can often hold high expectations for ourselves, even spiritually, we don't say it, but we think it. We believe that we have to have incredible prayers, inspirational quiet times, epic spiritual moments that we, we could capture on, in HD with epic background music. And if our, mom, if our moment with God isn't that Kodak moment, or it's not Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook worthy, then we believe the lie of Satan that it wasn't important at all, that God didn't see it, and, and so then we don't, we don't do it anymore. My friends and I like to mountain bike, and, and when we get ready to go, we always start our workout apps to capture 
how fast and how far and how long we rode, right? We always kid ourselves. We always say this every time. Well, if we don't record it, then what? Then it didn't happen, right? If we don't record it, it didn't happen. I think we bring this attitude into our walk with God. If our moments with God are not recordable or postable or exciting or pithy or attention-grabbing or worthy of a hundred likes, then we don't think that it's important. We don't think that it's important and it doesn't count or we never did it. So then why do it? And this is a lie from Satan to keep us from doing the spiritual disciplines necessary to have a vibrant relationship with Jesus. Look at Jesus. He went into the garden alone three times and he prayed the exact same thing, saying the same words, alone, repetition, the same words. No selfies, no recording, no one posted it, no one liked it. The only one it mattered to was God the Father. In the end of the day, there's really only one person who cares about all the details of your life, and that is God the Father. He wants to hear you. He doesn't care if you repeat your prayers to him. He doesn't care if you remember that moment forever because you took that epic photo of yourself on your knees with makeup running down your face, hands uplifted in emotional prayer. He just wants you, all of you, and only you, in that moment. Be there with him in that moment. And Jesus is a great example of that. So if you get hung up on the same worry, or if you keep reliving the same trauma, or if you keep repeating the same request, if you keep reminding God of the same promise, if you just sit and cry in his presence, if you grieve without words, if you groan or, and simply cry, if you confess your confusion, if you admit your weakness and complacency, at least you're awake. At least you're awake. Prayer by its very nature keeps us vigilant. You know why? Because our eyes are on him. And if all you can do is pray, you know, we hear that all the time, all I can do is pray, and all your prayers sound like what I just described, then don't stop. You are more like Jesus than you think. And if you want to pray like Jesus did, pouring your heart out to God, but you feel embarrassed or insecure or uncomfortable, like God will reject you, then my encouragement is, try it. Just try it. Give God a try. Go into the garden, fall down on the ground, and just say what's on your heart. He will not turn you away. The one who sees and hears you is Jesus. And he was there, just like you, and completely understands everything you're going through. My final point is this. Vigilance and surrender. Verse 42. Jesus said, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So there's a contrast between Jesus and the disciples. Jesus, in his vigilance, is praying, and disciples are sleeping, and they're not praying. And Jesus says, he's vigilant. He says, see, my betrayer is at hand. And he was, he was vigilant regarding what was going on around him. He knew what was coming. He was prepared in body, soul, and spirit. Jesus had prayed. His heart was in sync with God's heart. Jesus had grieved. There was going to be loss, and he accepted it. Jesus had requested. He had asked if there was any other way, but he surrendered his will to the Father's will. And Jesus had resolved in his heart, not what I will, but what you will, Father. Jesus had been vigilant in prayer, and he was ready for what lied ahead. Time in prayer with the Father will cause us to be ready for what lies ahead. 
The disciples, on the other hand, Jesus comes, are you sleeping still? Even with all that Jesus said still ringing in their ears, they didn't understand the enormity of the situation. They had failed Jesus. He wanted them to experience this with him. He didn't want to be alone. They failed to watch and pray with him. And he said, it is enough. Now, translators struggled to capture the essence of this word. And my own stab at what Jesus was conveying is the modern day word, whatever. This test is over. You failed. I'm disappointed. Nothing we can do about it now. Time is up anyway. The hour has come. And Jesus had prophesied this very hour in chapter 13, verse 32. And we talked about how Jesus had both an immediate and a future fulfillment in mind when he said, concerning that day or hour, no one knows. It's kind of like Jesus was saying, I warned you about this and you didn't listen. You fell asleep. And Jesus surrenders. He says, rise, let us be going. And Jesus willfully and courageously surrendered his will to the will of the Father. And he stepped into what was coming afterwards. He told the three to stand up. Jesus knew that they would desert him. Better for them to enter into that moment standing than lying there on the ground. It's easier to get away and run when you're standing up than when you're lying down. And he says, let us be going. Not in the sense of running away. Jesus wanted to get going in the sense of heading into battle. He wasn't running from, he was running to. All the love and the courage and the poise and the grace, the resolve, the humility, the surrender and the forgiveness of Jesus all wrapped up in this moment. He's our Savior and our King. He's Son and Servant. In closing, just two things. A true disciple is spiritually vigilant. It's not rocket science to be prayerfully vigilant, but it does take discipline. I would encourage you to implement two spiritual disciplines in your life. Not so that you can gain merit with God or work your way into heaven, simply so that you can remain vigilant and so that you're ready for what lies ahead, like Jesus was. And here are the two disciplines. Watch and pray. In other words, read God's word and pray. Every day. Start with simply 10 minutes of prayer and 10 minutes of reading. Less time than you would spend watching a TV sitcom or scrolling through your Facebook. Try it for a week and then try it for a month and see if your perspective doesn't begin to change and your walk with Jesus doesn't begin to grow. If you don't know what to pray, then pray the Lord's Prayer or read a psalm and pray that. Just simply start. Share your heart with God. Share your burdens, share your cares, share your concerns, share your fears and your anxieties. If you are praying, don't give up. Don't fall asleep. Keep praying for the lost, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, for God's will to be done. Continue to watch and pray. And then number two, prayer is a necessary spiritual discipline. It is Seriously, a matter of life and death. It's an avenue through which God works in us, and it's a means of surrendering our will to the will of the Father. I want you to listen to another prayer of David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. It's inspired by the Lord, and the Lord happens to be Jesus. Okay, So it's actually inspired by Jesus. And think of Jesus in the garden, looking forward to all the sins of humanity put upon him as I read this psalm. Okay, Think of Jesus in the garden right now. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation, your wrath. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. 
For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand afar off. Those who seek my life lay snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, who will answer. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation." I don't know about you, but I read a psalm like that and I put it together with Jesus' episode, this episode in Jesus' life, and my appreciation and love for him increases. I'm in awe of what Jesus did for us, and at the same time, I'm impressed with the need for prayer like that in my life. If Jesus needed it and he did it, then I need it too. And the psalmist describes the effects of his own sin, and Jesus took all those effects upon himself. The psalmist speaks of the effects of his own foolishness and Jesus agonized through the consequences of all of humanity's foolishness. And Jesus in his prayer and in his passion, he experienced all the fear and trauma and anxiety and sadness and questions and alarm and uncertainty and fatigue and nausea and shakes and trembles that we do as humans. He was God and he didn't deserve it, yet he experienced it all for us. He took it all to the Father in prayer. Be encouraged by this. Not only that Jesus took all the sin and wrath upon himself for you so you didn't have to do it, but also that Jesus understands you and your human weakness and frailty. Be affirmed and encouraged that Jesus has been where you are in your moments and in your days. And be challenged to be like Jesus and just take everything to the Father in prayer. So my encouragement is now that you know this, You may not receive the answers that you want, like Jesus didn't, but you will be heard by the Father that you need. A disciple surrenders in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this moment that we get to look into Jesus' life. He was so full of courage, even in the midst of anxiety and distress and fear and agony. Thank you that he took all the weight of all of our sins upon him, And all your wrath was poured on him instead of on us. We are so thankful for that. We trust in his shed blood and his his death and resurrection on our behalf. And we thank you that when we do that, we have a future in heaven. We don't have to worry about your wrath falling upon us. And we also thank you for the, the, uh, the example of Jesus there in the garden, just pouring himself out before you. Father, when we don't know what to do and we don't know where to turn, when we, we just, we've been trying so hard and we just, we don't know what to do, God, may we just fall on our knees and say, it's yours. I surrender to you. Your will be done, not mine. And let us rest in the fact that you have our futures in control and you can raise us up just as you raised up Jesus. And we have a hope of eternal life in heaven. We have nothing to fear. We have hope in you. God, thank you for this story. I pray that we would be people of prayer, that we would go forth from here and that we would pray 
like we've never prayed before. In this hour that we need you, God, may we be vigilant and prayerful. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, why don't you stand for the benediction. As you're doing so, don't forget to place your offerings in the boxes uh, on either side of the doors as you exit. Uh, Your generosity allows us to meet each Sunday in this beautiful building. Um, God has blessed us with this incredible gift, which allows us to come together and worship uh, and fellowship together. So thank you for being generous each and every week to the work of the Lord. Now receive this benediction. May we surrender in prayer to the will of the Father through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you. You are dismissed. Have a good day.